Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This is a special episode of Planet Critical. Today is a conversation between Simon Michaud and Nafiz Ahmed, debating the recent report that Simon Michaud published about the mineral shortfall of the renewable economy. This is a follow-up to the episode that I published a few months ago called The Unsustainable Green Transition, in which Simon laid out the details of that report. And I would highly suggest, if you haven't already, listening to that first before listening to this discussion. Now, after Simon published his report, the energy section of Twitter exploded, with proponents of green growth and proponents of a renewable economy coming out against Simon's research, saying that there were errors in his models. This debate really blew up. I mean, we had Dennis Meadows, the author of Limits to Growth back in the 70s, weigh in. Ugo Bardi published a response on his blog as well. So it's really taken energy researchers by storm. Nafis Ahmed is a journalist and has been covering the energy industry for over 20 years. He wrote a critique of Simon's research, which was incredibly detailed, pointing out what he thought were the holes in the science. I saw this and thought it was wise to invite them both on to discuss it. Because to me, it was quite worrying to see people who are very much on the same side, who believe that the fossil fuel industry cannot continue, that we will not have a fossil fuel economy in the next 10 years, disagree on what the future might look like, to the point where sometimes on Twitter, conversations were completely shut down. Now, Nafis and Simon are not two people who were engaged in vitriol. And I'm very pleased to report that fundamentally, we end up in agreement that the world cannot remain as it is, and that a genuinely sustainable economy involves reimagining what the economy serves, what its purpose is, and therefore what the world will look like. This conversation does get quite technical at times. And very interestingly, Nafiz suggests that perhaps weeding into these technical differences or technical disagreements could be distracting from the overall objective, which Simon and Nafiz share, which is ushering in a new world with different technology and with different social models and economic models. And they end up by sharing visions of the future that are very, very similar. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. I think the thing is with me and Simon, I, mean, I don't like considering myself as part of a tribe, um, but I get where you're coming from, well, Simon. You know, it's not entirely wrong. But I think Simon and I, unlike a lot of other people who get into debates about this stuff, we're able to, to disagree even completely fundamentally. And that's cool. But, you know, we're, but it's cool is fine because I think we're both committed to trying to understand what's really going on. Um, 
and we have respect for each other's, you know, genuine respect for each other. I think that's yeah, the key, yeah, yeah. right? Like it's, right. He, he might say something I completely think I don't agree with that at all, but it's okay. You know, it's totally fine. And I think so hopefully what I do hope is that, um, at least in this, in this dialogue that we'll have now, hopefully we'll be able to demonstrate to people that you can have constructive, generative conversations about this stuff without killing each other. And, you know, it's mutually enriching and learning, even if people remain in their tribes, you know, you can still, it's still useful. It's still actually helpful. Um, you know, both, both sides can learn stuff, even if they fundamentally continue to disagree. Um, so I'm, you know, and I think Simon and I have been dialoguing about this on and off over several years. And obviously in the recent, you know, with the recent stuff, you know, things can get heated sometimes, you know, over emails and things like that and Twitter, you know, but I think we're, we're, we're always able to find that baseline to be like, well, actually let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's explore this. And Simon and I have always been, one thing I've noticed, you know, we're on different lists and other people on those lists will get even more heated than Simon and I. <laughs> it would just be like, and Simon and I would just be like, yeah, okay. And we'll just be carrying on. And other people will be throwing other stuff. So um, I think we've got like a good kind of rapport, you know, and that's because fundamentally as human beings, we do have, you know, we respect each other as human beings trying to figure out these big challenges that we're facing as a species. So, and that's what we're committed to doing. So, Simon? Yeah, how do we find the useful humans and, and, and how do we connect them? So we actually have, um, we, we were sort of talking back and forth. And uh, what I found when I say the word tribe is the moment you actually sort of engage in um, any sort of dialogue at all, there's almost like a preconceived set of words they like you to say and a preconceived set of ideas they like to say. And I, I've attended a number of higher level conferences re recently and I found the language people use force themselves into a tribe and they, and they just discount, they disqualify themselves from looking at solutions. And so I've recently come to the conclusion that the work up until this point might be useful, but what's required is you've got to leave those safety nets and strike out on your own and do something that's unprecedented. And yeah. And, and, and so, so if we were to meet these problems, if we were to actually sort of bring together the actual science and innovation ideas that could change things, what would that look like? But the first roadblock I hit was, um, you know, I was the senior people in the, um, you know, the, 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 the senior strategy makers in the, uh, resource world, what were they thinking and where were that? And I heard some things that stared the hell out of me. So what motivated me to do the work that we are now discussing? is the paradigm of the people who control our society, they're on a different planet and they don't necessarily care about human society at large. So what I'm trying to say here is, is the paradigm behind what Nafis is doing, I absolutely support. We, we, we may not agree on the, on the outcome, but I'm trying to do the same thing. And in fact, when this current work runs its course, my next generation is going to look very strange to some of my, you know, people who are following me. And, right. uh, and so Nafis, you've done some cool work, mate. 
Hang on, before we get into Nafis, um, I, I would like to say what I hope to get out of this conversation as well for the audience. Um, so, I mean, perhaps we will get, perhaps we will have the time to get to a stage where Simon can uh, present some of his ideas for solutions and innovation, and maybe Nafis, you can like <laughs> engage with those immediately, uh, re real time debunking or real time agreeing. That, agreeing, that could be fun. Um, but I think the main thing, you know, Nafis, you said a really interesting word, uh, polarizing. Um, that you want to show that people can have these discussions and disagreements in a sort of gentle, kindly, uh, civil manner. And I think for much of the audience, myself included, the confusion is, but why is science polarized at all? Surely these are things that you can test. These are models that you can look at. And the whole point of science is that, you know, everybody tends to come to the same conclusion, or at least that is what it is communicated to the layman as being, you know, its superior sort of uh, quality in comparison to ideological stances. Um, so perhaps before we dive in, if we could just explain that, like, why is it? Yeah. In both of your opinion, how is it that you can both look at these models and come to different opinions? Nafiz? Well, I mean, without getting into the nitty gritty, and I think, you know, I think it will be important for us to hear from Simon about what, you know, his, his findings, and we can obviously explore them and discuss them. Um, I think the big fundamental problem is, is, is that this, this general thing that we're seeing, this phenomenon, of polarization is obviously not limited science. We're seeing it everywhere. Everywhere. Um, and in my view, um, that heightening polarization is symptomatic of um, a, a, a real shift in the way our systems are working. The information, the information sector is obviously a crucial component of systems. And one of the things that we learn from even, you know, evolutionary biology is this very critical flow of information that has to happen for an organism, you know, which wants to survive, you know, and so there has to be a really good flow of information from the environment, which is processed coherently by the organism in order for adaptations to take place to big environmental changes. So I think it's really kind of interesting at our current time that exactly when we're experiencing these really huge environmental challenges, ecological challenges, energy challenges, food challenges, um, and so on and so forth, you know, social and political crises, all of these converging at the same time, which suggests that there's something deeply fundamentally wrong with, with the prevailing paradigm that, that we're moving through this, you know, moving to the eye of the needle. It's an evolutionary moment in a way where we were under extreme stress and the information that we need to make sense of all of this is very, very polarized. And one of the things we learned from this is that our existing information systems, the way that we think, the way that we process information in our societies, as communities, as institutions, as individuals, isn't really working. And so there's a lot of lots to unpack there, but what we can see is that it's not, it's not coherent. The information that's coming at us, we're really struggling, um, to process, you know, there's, we've never had more information we've never had more data ever, but the ability to kind of make that information coherent so that we have an understanding of our situation seems to be in some ways declining. 
you know, we, we're not able to keep up with the avalanche of information. Um, and I think Simon and I both recognize that. And I think the work we're doing yeah. is obviously trying to get some kind of a handle on that. I think what we're seeing, the reason that we're seeing a lot of polarization within even science is exactly that, that one of the biggest things we've seen with the scientific paradigm itself is that it's very fragmented and arguably reductionist, um, which is not a bad thing by itself, but can be a bad thing because you're just holding up a magnifying glass, um, you know, and you're running along the road, that's going to give you a really granular understanding of the pavement, but you won't know what's going on around you. So you're liable to crash into something. So I think what we need, you know, there's lots of different people holding up different magnifying glasses and looking at different things, but it's, you know, it's like the whole, the famous analogy of the elephant in the, you know, the elephant, you know, where people are looking at different parts and they're trying to not really speak to each other properly, trying to get an image of what the actual elephant looks like. So we're lacking coherent, holistic, integrated frameworks to make sense of all of this stuff. And so that leaves us a little, I think that's one of the reasons why science can be polarizing because you've got experts in different disciplines looking at different things. You know, so you know, Simon's, you know, mining expert, um, really knows his stuff in that area, but maybe doesn't know so much about some of the other stuff that is relevant to understanding these things. And same thing, you know, I'm kind of consider myself a systems theorist, um, but in a way, a generalist trying to scramble around, figuring out how do I integrate these different fields, not necessarily an expert in any one of them. And then you have experts in food, ex you know, economists, experts in other areas who are all maybe have real legitimate expertise in their own right, but don't quite understand what's going on in the other fields. And that creates a real problem because it means that in reality, these are highly complex integrated systems. The frameworks that we have are just frameworks. The actual reality of the world is that it's deeply interconnected. So we're struggling and scrambling. And I think maybe what we really need when we begin these conversations is just a little bit of humility on all sides to say, well, I'm only looking at it from one lens and actually maybe I'm not seeing everything. And maybe what my colleague here is, is telling me they have some valuable insights that maybe I quite don't understand now. And I'll stop and listen and I might not agree and I might not quite understand, but I'll stop and listen. Um, I think we're very used to having fragmented kind of conversations, which can become polarizing because of that. It's one of the, the things that we're, we're, we're struggling to deal with. Okay. So what I hear in that is that actually there are these sort of like, because we don't have an integrative framework with which to understand like the big picture, everybody is sort of coming at different pieces of information from their own lens or from their own angle and thus might miss what their colleague has to contribute given that they're coming from a different angle themselves. Um, but I mean, my specific question was, why don't you two agree? Like, why is there this polarization when you're looking at the same models? I mean, Simon, do you want to have a bash? The simple answer for me is I've developed a methodology that hasn't been used before. And I, I was part of the world that looked at the, the academia and the, and the models and everything. And my first generation of work did not survive peer review. Um, I was barbecued by the commercial guys. Um, and so I, I came up with a, an engineering calculation of if we were to replace everything, what would that look like? I absolutely agree with the, with the idea that we've become more siloed. We call it the silo. Everyone's in a specialist area. 
and no one likes to talk, have talk outside their silo. In addition to that, we've become very ideological over the last 50 years. And a debate in the sense of the ancient Greeks was where we were supposed to learn something. And a debate was supposed to be um, an education and you come away from thinking that was really good. Now the debate a lot around us is, it seems to be very much conquest-based. I'm right, you're wrong. I will now beat you into submission in debate. And I, I really think that's a, a terrible mistake for the science uh, institution of science. And if it doesn't get out of that, it's going to lose its relevancy. Right, so, so back to what, what I did. Like what most people would do, would do like a market prediction of next year or the year after, or they would have these... Um, Hang on, Simon, can you go into a little bit more detail? What would do what? Market prediction of what? So in a, in a debate, when we tend to debate with each other, right, we, we tend to go on a very specialized set of metrics and KPIs, right? And if our opponent cannot talk to those KPIs and metrics, we dismiss them, right? And that's, that I think the, the institution of science has evolved into something that's not helpful. Now, in our history, in our past, other institutions have hit a certain point, like philosophy or religion or other institutions, again, like, like, like for example, you know, uh, feudalism or something. They, they, they've all hit like a bottleneck. They've all hit like a, a, a challenge point. And if we don't rise to the occasion to deal with that, that bottleneck, if you will, then we'll be overrun by another institution. I would like to feel that my work as a scientist and as an engineer advances that science and engineering. And then this field will still be in practice in 500 years time, right? Whereas what I'm starting to worry is people will, will lose, will, will, they'll lose um, the belief that what we're doing is useful. What, 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 we're arguing over things that most people cannot understand and they don't see as solving the problems that need to be solved. And I'm trying to break out of that. That's, that's what I'm uh, trying to say there. So, so my work was to try a different methodology. I was involved with a research group um, that looked at what was called geometallurgy about 10 years ago. And we found that feasibility studies in the mining industry were no longer delivering. Uh, and you know why was that? And the technology behind those feasibility studies was no longer adequate to the, the tools weren't sophisticated enough. And so we went to an evolution of developing new tools. And I think that's what's happening here in the whole debate around what do we do? All our tools for the past might have been okay for the past set of circumstances, but they may not perform very well for the new set of circumstances. We're actually building a new set of tools and a new set of paradigms to operate those tools, which is why some of us sound a little crazy. <laughs> um, well, all that's right, been told anyway. <laughs> all right, we are about fifteen minutes in here, so let's crack on with it. Simon, present present your case so that Nafiz can then present his and come back to it. Try and keep it really, really tight. You know, sort of five minutes. All right, so let's let's go, go let's go for it. Right, so the big one here is the stationary power buffer. How big should it be? So hang on, you let, let's bring it right back. What are we talking about? We are talking about electric, the amount of materials that are necessary uh, to produce a generation of electric vehicles on the road. 
Can you say the numbers of these vehicles, where you got those projections from as well? Okay. All right. Let's go back to the scope of the work. This, this is such a complicated thing. And this is why we have trouble sort of um, saying this in like in a 30 second snapshot. Um, all right. So I did a calculation on if we were to phase out fossil fuels completely and replace all ICE systems that are around us now with non-fossil fuel systems. And what's ICE? Internal combustion engine. Thank you. We're going to phase out fossil fuels in its entirety. How do we do that? Uh, the purpose of this work is when I actually heard members of the European Commission Senior Civil Service laying down the, uh, laying down the hammer of what the future would be. And it, what I heard really worried me. And so the work was actually for them. And obviously, we're not going to do this. We're going to do something else. But that's part of our discussion. All right. So we've got 1.4 billion vehicles in the transport fleet. Uh, and they traveled about 16 uh, trillion kilometers in the year of 2018. I had a, a split between what was an electric vehicle and a hydrogen fuel cell. All short-range work should be done by electric vehicles. And all long-range systems should be hydrogen fuel cells. And how uh, many new vehicles are added to the roads every year? So this is just just 2018. Mm. It's just uh, what happened in 2018. And if we were to replace it, I'm not looking at economic uh, uh, population growth at all. Okay. It's the existing system. Okay. So then I mapped out fossil fuels, what, what, what happened in that year. And then I started to actually substitute things. So if we were to go electric vehicles, the existing fleet, um, what do we need? And uh, electrical power and steel manufacture. I came to, we need an extra 37,289 terawatt hours of electrical extra power. Now, this is to map the existing system. Fafisa and I both believe this actually won't happen. But this is to actually talk to our existing policymakers. Uh, so if we were to do it, uh, non-fossil fuel systems, what would that look like? I also uh, looked at you know, uh, wind and solar are highly intermittent, and we needed a four-week, we needed a, a buffer for that. So I actually got uh, some assumptions around that. That turned out to be the sore point, and the actual majority of the debate has been around how big should that st uh, power buffer be for wind and solar. Um, okay. So in, in terms of energy mix, I then went on to a... Power, uh, a split that was actually proposed by the IEA for 2050 and worked and who's out. the IEA? International Energy Agency. Thank you. Right. So they predicted what it might be in 2050. And so based on that, I actually sort of uh, put my own split together. And um, now we've actually got a sort of, sort of like each section, for example, wind and solar will deliver a certain amount. Now okay. this so hang on, Simon. Simon, I'm going to pause. I'm going to pause you here because this needs some translation into layman's language. Okay. So, so you were looking at the number of vehicles uh, that were on the road in 2018, and based on the numbers available in the European Union, and based what you heard from the European Commission of their projections, what would it take? How many minerals and materials would it take to make all of those electric, all of those vehicles yeah. electric? So it's 1.6 um, billion vehicles, 16 yeah. trillion kilometers traveled every year um at the same time as you were doing this work you then began looking at our energy system so it's currently fully fossil fuel and obviously we're trying to transition to renewable that typically means uh wind solar maybe some wave and hydrogen um and you were looking at um the minerals and materials that would be required for that too 
Um, obviously, these are based off of sort of existing calculations um, and projections out into the future. So these are all based on models. You also then looked at buffer and buffer is what it uh, is sort of the word that's used in this field for when wind and solar drop out because it's either not windy or it's not sunny. There needs to be an energy storage facility, which in normal language is called a battery that can keep putting out energy to the grid and providing that buffer when the energy is intermittent. To add to that, the first half of the work was to calculate the size of the task in front of us okay. in terms of numbers of technical units on the ground, number of solar panels, number of wind turbines, number of batteries, what kind of batteries um, yeah. and, and new vehicles. And so then I uh, um, worked out the minerals and metals and bowls second. And then third was actually to compare against existing minerals, uh, mining mineral delivery. As for a buffer, our existing power system has to deliver what's called sinusoidal clean power. 100% of the time, it must be the same voltage, current, and frequency. And if it deviates even a little bit, we have what's called a brownout or a blackout and our electrical stuff's damaged. Um, so th this is, this is uh, to replace the system as it is. Um, like later, I'm going to show you scenario N, yeah, which okay, actually thank you. something different. All right. So instead of actually going after the you know, energy return and energy invested debate, which to me has become so convoluted, it's not useful anymore. Now, what I did was in the year 2018, I actually went to Global Energy Observatory and collected information from about 10,000 power stations across the different variations of different systems. And so, so in the year 2018, across the, all those stations, and I ran some statistics for, for the average station, how big was that station installed in, install capacity? Uh, how much power did it deliver uh, to the grid over that year? And what was its operating uh, hours? Like how often was it available? And so I actually got some metrics, not what they promise, uh, but what do they actually deliver? Uh, and that's the actual basis of my uh, uh, th th thing so far. So, so I haven't actually used any calculations or models. It's just a straight reporting that's then projected onto a new profile. And so... I'm sorry, what does that mean a new, onto a new profile? Okay, so, so now we've actually got an extra, um, we, we need an extra 37,000 terawatt hours, 30,289 terawatt hours a year. And we know it's going to be split up amongst the different energy systems, you know, um, and we're going to take out oil, gas, and coal. What was the effectiveness of oil, gas, and coal in terms of what they delivered? And so what do they deliver for? But we're now going to deliver that power directly using, say, solar PV systems or geothermal. So, all right, so if we know, we know how much power solar has to deliver, how many stations of average size would we need based on performance metrics in 2018? So it, it's a different way of doing this. And um, is it the best way? I don't know. <laughs> so, um, but so how many stations will we need? And then that tells you how big was that station how many solar panels are in that station. So that gives us an estimate of installed capacity. And then you can go back to how many megawatts we need to deliver. So you take that, the performance of our different systems as it was in 2018, um, and then you project that onto the energy mix that's been selected. And that was then applied to the amount of new power that we need, you know, 37,289 terawatt hours. 
And then we work out the number of power stations. Now, the existing fleet of power stations is about 46,423 in 2018. And the number of new power stations we will need of average size is 607,052 across the whole different sector. And that's to describe the actual size. And the next step after that was to work out what metals that we would need to deliver that. I think as Simon mentioned, he was essentially responding to um, a very conventional way of understanding what the energy transition looks like, which is a one-for-one substitution approach. That here's the old system. This is how it is. This is how much power we've got. Let's, how do we switch everything out to replace it, to do exactly the same things? Um, and I think one of the things that emerged in our dialogue, you know, I wrote my piece, I came out swinging, um, Simon, you know, responded, you know, we responded over email, you know, we had a dialogue, you know, we were probably still swinging the emails and then we, then we <laughs> kind of calmed down. And I think what emerged is we both realized that actually what was being proposed would never happen. Um, oh yeah. And that's, and that's kind of the interesting thing that we ended up converging on. So I think one of the things, for instance, that I think was clear, and, and I think this is worth bearing in mind that actually the way policymakers do think about this is very linear. It is very much, well, how do we keep doing the same thing in a different way with, you know, solar panels are just going to, you know, electric vehicles are just going to replace internal combustion engines in a one-for-one fashion. And I think the work that I've been doing the last few years um, has opened my eyes to how much that narrative just isn't true because many of the technologies that we're looking at are actually new, they represent new systems. Um, and technology disruptions don't ever really represent one-for-one substitutions. They change the whole, the way the whole sector operates. And by that, what we mean is there are new rules, there are new dynamics, there are new properties, which completely change everything. Um, that doesn't mean that they solve everything. And often what they might do is solve one thing and create new problems, but you can't just assume it's going to be the same. You know, it's like the way the car disrupted the horse, you know, the car wasn't a faster horse. It completely changed everything. Um, and it led to the generation of whole new transport systems, new urban infrastructure, you know, everything we did change, you know, retail, you know, the design of our city, everything just changed as a result of the car. So I think when we realized that we realized that actually these knowledge are different. So one of the things that I was, um, Noticing was that, well, we're not going to be producing exactly the same, we don't need to produce exactly the same amount of power because one of the things that happens with fossil fuels is obviously when, is, is in, when you're converting from the, there's, there's what we call primary energy, which is, you know, the, you know, what the, the, the kind of the, the, uh, what's the value of the energy at, you know, right there at source, but pro, you know, when you're burning fossil fuels, but that's not usable energy, primary energy. You know, you have to convert it, you know, through, and usually there's a lot of heat that's generated, huge amounts of heat and there's a lot of waste. So one of the things that we know is that, you know, there's about up to 70% loss of energy converting primary, primary energy into what you call final energy, which is when it becomes kind of useful. 
So, so one of the one of the kind an, of things for an image, yeah. Nafis, on that. So that would be like refining crude oil into a final product. Up to seventy percent of the energy in that crude oil can be lost in that process. Essentially, yeah. I mean, so you know, there's a lot of different processes that you might have in place. But get that, you know, oil that you pump out of the ground and actually make it something that's that's usable. Yeah, you know, to uh, you know, in a car, for instance, or something like that. You know, there's, there's, you know, between 50 to 70%, just depending on which process you're looking at, you know, will be lost. So with renewables, with it, it's a, just a different type of technology. So it produces, it doesn't go through that process. It produces electricity directly uh, to a final stage. Now that may generate other kind of issues and complications, but fundamentally you're, you're, what you're seeing is that you have to then look at how that works in a different way. So all of those losses that would take place using prior, you know, using fossil fuels won't happen. So there's lots of studies which have looked at this and essentially calculated that, you know, you're looking at around 50, you know, it's, it's a, you won't probably 50% of the energy that you're generating with total primary energy, you know, that consumption just won't happen, won't need to happen. It's going to be 50% less. So that, so the, my initial reaction at first was, well, there's ways, you know, the, it won't be a one for one kind of power calculation that will be needed. You know, you'll be needing a lot less energy. Um, but that's just look, that's looking at a meta kind of thing, you know, and then, and then there's obviously looking at, I think the biggest thing that emerges that emerged in that conversation was, you know, when Simon did his calculations and looking at well, how many things, well, obviously the biggest thing was, um, well, how many, how much battery storage do you need? Um, I mean, that was one of the big contentions. I think that was the, that's the thing that, um, was the big thing because battery components are pretty expensive. They're the most expensive component of a renewable energy system. Um, and you know, they require lots of materials, lots of minerals. And so there were these disagreements really around, you know, this quite big disagreements around, well, how much storage do we need in, a, in, in what, in these systems? Um, Simon was of the view that, um, you know, that that's been underestimated in a lot of the studies. Um, and it's, you know, you need, you need to have four weeks. And then I was looking at, there's a lot of studies of intermittency, which are saying, well, we actually really don't need that much. Um, and I think that's, that's the disagreement. You know, what, what I think one of the things that emerged from that conversation, um, was, was that. There's a, there's actually a way of doing this, which mitigates the amount of battery storage that you might need. And that was one of the conversations that, that we were having is so let's assume there was all these conversations about, well, do we use other types of storage rather than batteries? So one of the things that, that is, that is, a, that is clear is that a lot of the studies looking at intermittency talk about, well, what, what about seasonal storage? Um, and so there's. There's another debate there, which is well, what kinds of seasonal storage are available. There's some which are really not quite there. You know, there's stuff which isn't, isn't, isn't workable yet and is not cost-effective yet, but may become cost-effective in, in, in some years, such as um, hydrogen, for instance, which, you know, is, is, you know, I think we have a lot of like hydrogen electrolysis, uh, electrolysis which is producing hydrogen from, uh, Use, you know, using electricity. Um, so you could use solar and wind electricity to produce 
produce hydrogen. If, but 30% of energy is lost in that um, conversion. So why bother? I mean, what I hear about hydrogen is that it's sort of a, a scam that's, um, unless it's hydrogen for heating, it's a scam that's being pushed by the fossil fuel industry in a bid to maintain relevance. Yeah, so let's step back a little bit here. So that, that's like a further conversation because I think there is a whole discussion about even the hydrogen debate right now has become there's there's fossil fuel industries which are promoting blue hydrogen, mm-hmm. which is hydrogen from gas. So keep the existing system going, bung mm-hmm. of hydrogen on the end, that's going to solve everything. And then also on top of that, bung carbon capture and storage. But keep on, keep on pumping fossil fuels. You know, oh yeah, we can, you know, gas, you burn the gas, have carbon capture as well, and have hydrogen. I mean, I think Simon and I probably agree. We will not only destroy the entire planet, we will also destroy our economies. And we'll probably do that within 10 years and everything will, you know, dystopia collapse, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think there's another question as to whether um, hydrogen electrolysis, which is producing hydrogen from solar and wind, the viability of that. And I agree. I don't think it's, um, it's not a mature technology yet. It's not commercially viable yet. Um, But there is a case to be made that as in a clean energy system, hydrogen only in a clean energy system, would hydrogen possibly be viable? And right now, probably it, it isn't, but I think there is a possibility which could, which is open to scientific debate as to whether and how that becomes possible. So a lot of, so a lot of the studies of intermittency have been looking at that and saying, well, if it becomes viable, looking at some of these cost curves, maybe in 20, 30 years, the cost could come down this much, blah, blah, blah. Then it might work, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I mean, and there's not just, I mean, there's other stuff as well. There's also stuff which is more mature. Compressed air storage, for instance, is this way of storing heat in air. Again, there's lots of efficiency losses as well here. You know, something like 60 to 70% of, of, uh, of, of, of energy will be lost in that storage process. Compressed air, but the compressed air is a pretty mature technology. It's not massively expensive. You know, there are logistical challenges as well. There was another one that me and Simon were talking about, which is pumped hydro storage, which um, also holds promise, very mature technology. It's pretty cheap. It's very known. Um, again, it's really about logistics of, of, you know, location and things like that. So there's all this stuff, which is potential. Um, and I think really what, but there was another scenario, which I was, really excited about. It's something that we modeled at Rethink X when I, when I was, Rethink X pioneered this kind of approach. Um, and that was the way you optimize the design of a renewable energy system. And that approach was saying, um, and there's a lot of actual other studies which corroborate Rethink X findings, which is that if you, if you overbuild your generating capacity, so you build out solar and wind to around three times demand. Or, or so up to I, around five times demand. So um, that means adding extra turbines and panels extra more turbines, than you think you need. Extra yeah. panels, yeah. Then mm-hmm. you would um, be able to, you wouldn't need your, the amount of batteries you would need would be dramatically reduced by almost as much as 90%. Um, and it would depend like, so- on different locations. Um, so that was basically another pathway. And it's the pathway that I think in any event, no matter what we're talking about, I would say it's, a cheap, you know, all the data shows that that's the cheapest cost system is the one that is, uh, going to be best in terms of materials, because the materials that you would need for, for, gen- for building solar and wind are 
largely pretty widely available. And it's the battery stuff, which makes it really, really difficult. That will reduce your battery requirements by a great, great deal. Okay, let me let me jump in here um, because we're kind of getting to the bit that I don't understand about you guys not understanding each other, um, which is that from my understanding of Simon's work, we, I mean, we're talking about a resource limit and we're talking about the dangers of, a, of, a, of an unknown resource limit. We're talking about, you know, taking a huge gamble with the planet's resources and causing like in, possibly incredibly ecological damage. So I was on the phone to a mining guy in Australia this week. Um, and he said that for every one point six for every one point six million tons of nickel, we produce two hundred and fifty million tons of waste, and that's mining, ladies and gentlemen. And so, what we are looking at is if we're you know for a renewable economy. So let me say this is kind of where I feel like the debate is is missing each other because to me Simon is talking about very very physical constraints and yes perhaps he used a one for one and maybe Simon you could explain why you chose one for one and yes perhaps like the demands would be decreased and all this kind of stuff but if he's you seem to be coming at it as well from like an economic perspective um so like market forces um and energy output um and there seems to be sort of just missing one another in terms of talking about the exact constraints and the potential ecological footprint of what it will look if we really do mine the hell out of the earth in order to have a renewable economy. I mean, I read about the intermittency um, possibility of like of trying to figure out intermittency by building out, you know, by creating these wind farms or having solar panels that are three to five times the necessity. And to me, it was just like, surely that's got a material cap on it. Considering these things, these plants need to be rebuilt every 20 to 40 years. And we sh we are just going to run out at some point. And it seems such a big gamble, such a big gamble at this point to depend on, A, well, this technology is a stepping stone. Fingers crossed it gets us somewhere else. And B, we don't actually know if we have enough stuff in the ground. I've got some numbers to show Lafice based on the questions that you basically said. But Lafice, have you finished your set? Like, is there more stuff you'd like to say? I'd quite like a response to that. Yeah, I can yeah. respond to that. I mean, I think that's, those are, those are really important instead. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's, uh, I mean, I think the question is, is it possible to, are we suggesting that we don't do mining at all? It should end mining. No, absolutely not. Or are we suggesting that we, you know, mining needs to be transformed in the same way that so many other things need to be transformed. So I think, um, it's a total valid issue that we have a problem with the way that we are mining. It's extremely wasteful. It's destructive. And so many, you know, how many of our systems are not like that? They're all like that. They're all destructive. I think the reality is though, is that we need to find a way to do this in a way that how are we going to meet the needs of our human population? We know that there's going to be continued uh, population growth. It's not going to suddenly stop. It's going to continue growing. All the projections suggest it's going to continue growing out to around 10 billion before it begins to stabilize down. Um, so we have a problem. Is it going to be possible or not? My, I'm not suggesting that we don't deal with that in some way, but what I, but, but I think there's, a, I don't think let's just end mining is, is, a, is a reasonable answer. I think we need to look at, is there evidence that, that we can transform mining? And I think there is. That's the key thing for me, is that how do we make mining 
something which is not going to hurt the earth and not going to create massive waste and not going to create massive destruction. I think that's possible. And I think we need to find solutions to do that. I, I also think that, you know, within why, the... Within, is there any do you is there any data to suggest that that is possible? And maybe Simon, you can weigh in on this as well. Like this is this is my concern as somebody you know who sort of thinks about the ecological footprint of these things. We've never tried it before. We've never. No one's ever cared. That's the problem. We don't have our system is not you know the value system is all about let's make profit at the, at the lowest cost and the biggest profits. What happens if we want to create a system where it says actually we value the earth? Because there's only a certain, exactly as you said, there's only a certain amount of this that you can do before you destroy everything. And mm -hmm. where are your profits then when you're mm -hmm. dead? Completely mm -hmm. pointless. So we need to have, we need to realize that the value system are wrong. Let's look at how, I think we can do this. I think there are, there are people who, there's reason to look at how you can create circular economies. And maybe it's not a circular economy. Maybe it's slightly more advanced. I mean, Simon's uh, talked about this idea of a resource balanced economy, which I think is a really valuable contribution to the debate and you know Simon is a mining expert and he's looking at how do you do how do you have a relationship with the earth which is respectful you know which says we can draw materials but we give back we recycle and we do it in a way which doesn't create these massive massive waste streams which are going to destroy ecosystems so we're beginning to look at this there is research which shows that it, that it, that we can do this but obviously it's going to be it, that there's going to be a cost to that as well in the way that we that we run that system. That's going to be a very different type of system to what exists today. Totally different. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually not. No, sorry, Rachel. Go on, Simon. No, no, no. Please. Go I'm on, not Simon. suggesting for a moment that we should stop mining. In fact, I'm trying to shout from the rooftop. I think I was. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, we've got to do, do something that is inherently better. Now, on a day-to-day -day basis, we're consuming raw materials of all kinds. And if we're going to reimagine an entirely new system, by the way, that's my new word, reimagine into a smaller space. Uh, um, if we're going to do that, we are going to build a new system and we will need raw materials of all kinds. So, so we will need mining going forward, but it has to be to a different business model and a different paradigm. At the moment, the way the mining industry operates, it's all about profit and it's all about growth. And they don't care where that metal goes or what it does. That's not their problem. And that's the problem. And so, so, so our industry has to think like a systems analyst. And they're not. They're thinking in silos. And they like it that way. So what's happening here, I believe, is uh, the commodities industry at large has been misunderstood. We, we, we've not, as someone coming from the mining industry uh, it, it, it's, itself, especially when I came to Europe, Europe didn't extract its own resources, it bought stuff off the market. So at a deep paradigm, it actually doesn't think in terms of the realities of extracting stuff in general, whether it's producing food or mining minerals or, or sourcing energy, it all comes from somewhere else and they just pay the money. They also are very, very, very impressed with their own view of the future. <laughs> and, and so, yes, we have to completely reimagine everything. And that's what I'm sort of shouting from the rooftops, and it will be different, whether we like it or not. They said, can we be smart about this? Duh. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I really do think that um, the people who actually make decisions in terms of policy at the moment 
are not tethered to reality at all. Um, they think in terms of uh, uh, how things have happened in the last 50 years and the reports they read are all market forces interacting with technology. They do not consider um, how that technology and market forces might interact with the commodities industry. That's just a part of their lexicon, a part of their thinking. And, and this is where I'm trying to get some discussion um, um, going. By the way, Nafis, I've got a solution for you that might work. We've been talking about buffer uh, and everything, different technologies. I've come across one recently, the burning of iron powder. Iron's a, a fairly sort of common element, and it burns at about 1,000 degrees Celsius. You can put it into existing uh, um, coal-fired power stations, and it generates heat, which might be useful for industry and everything. So when we're, when we're sort of talking about the different solutions, I've, I've got some numbers to show why I think uh, hydrogen and pump hydro uh, won't work, and I've got a simulation of the, the, the overbuild. But there's a solution on the table that might actually give us our power buffer without using batteries. I'm still collecting the numbers on that, so they'll have to sort of come back to you on that one. So what's next? You, you, um, I've got a list of questions here to answer. Shall I, shall I go through that? No, not yet. I would like to stay on this sort of, you know, so what you're both saying is that the future is going to have to be different. Oh, yeah. But Simon, you're sort of warning that the future is going to have to be different based on, you know, the fact that renewable technology um, will have to, will have different problems compared to our current system. Um, and also warning against what will happen if we don't. And the fees, you're saying, yeah, the future will have to be different, but actually by way of implementing new technology, it will change. And to me, as the layman here who doesn't get a vote, it just seems like such big risks. It all seems like such big risks to be sort of like galloping towards, you know, new potential technology when there's not consensus on the science, when nobody seems to know, actually, if we do, you know, there's people that are like, yeah, we've got more than enough, you know, um, minerals in the earth's crust and lithium in the sea, everything will be absolutely fine. Versus, you know, do we actually even want everything to be absolutely fine? Surely we want this to be an opportunity where we restructure. Like, by focusing on the technology, are we also sort of turning away from the, the hard work of reimagining the economy so that when we do deploy new technology, those changes that you're both talking about as being necessary and being desired will be ensured to happen. Because right now, you're both using the word paradigm, and I don't see how a new technology will necessarily change a paradigm, given that we have seen 50 years of suppression of different technology and suppression of uh, important information, such as the Limits to Growth Act, massive propaganda, all these kinds of things. Like, what, these industries will suddenly go, hey, actually, do you know what? You're right. You're right. You're right. Have a renewable world. Have a safe world. Have an equitable world. So... I think it's fine, and I probably agree on this as well, um, because I actually covered um, uh, a report that Simon did a few years ago before this one about the oil industry. Um, we're both in agreement that the oil industry is dying. And these are due to, um, diff you know, this is due to fundamental geological and economic dynamics, you know, but you know, we're using more energy just to get the energy out. Yeah. And it's getting to a point where it's not going to work. Um, so we have two, there's two big imperatives in terms of the, the phase out of fossil fuels. One is we're going to destroy our planet if we don't stop burning fossil fuels. Um, we've just heard about the Arctic summer sea ice probably inevitably disappearing 
it would within the you know by the 2030 lead. I think it was 2027. Yeah, I mean that's just absolutely devastating news to have this news come out. You know, because it means that we've you know we're not in the we, we're not in the so-called 1.5 C danger zone. We're just above 1C. But as NASA's James Hansen has been warning for decades, you know, he's been saying that 1C is already too much. And we're seeing the result now, you know, because the Arctic is a tipping point. You know, you've reached one tipping point, then as we know, when you're looking at these big systems, if they're all interconnected, then you're at risk of reaching other tipping points. We're going to have bouts of extreme weather, which we've never seen before, um, which could, you know, create a tailspin. So it's really, really worrying. We really need to move super fast on this. Um, so that's the climate imperative to get off fossil fuels. Um, and that's what really is I'm conscious of. And I think that's why Simon, what, what Simon is conscious of. And I think that's why there is this seemingly obsessive conversations around technology, because obviously there is unavoidable conversations about, well, what do we do if we don't use fossil fuels? What do we um, do? so that's, I guess why, why that's why we're both obsessed with this stuff. Um, it's not that we think that's the only answer. Um, it's just that that's clearly one of the key issues. Um, the other thing, of course, is that the fossil fuel industry is dying. It's dying a lot faster than the fossil fuel industry wants us to believe. Um, you know, there was, and there was a recent study, another study that I covered uh, a, lot, a couple of years ago uh, by some French scientists talking about um, how the energy return uh, on investment of oil is so bad now that they're going to be using some, they're going to be using like a third to a quarter of the energy produced by oil just to keep getting oil out into the 2030s and by 2050 it'll be half. I mean, that's not a financially viable process, right? Like th at some point it's going to just break down. So we actually have a really, so all the signals are saying you have a very short window to do something about this. But I think you're absolutely right, Rachel, to, to point out that obviously, to, you know, it's not just about technology um, because what is it that has, what is it that the fossil fuel system means? The fossil fuel system is part and integral to a whole wider paradigm of centralized control of resources, um, which creates certain predatory dynamics in the system. So when you're shifting, I think what I'm, what I'm interested in looking at is as we're recognizing that we have to shift and I'm going to shift something different inevitably at some point in the process of doing that, what does that new system look like? What does the economy look like? What does the organizing system look like? What does the governance system look like? And it looks totally different. And I think that's one of the things that Simon and I absolutely agree on is that if, if you, for instance, you cannot have a system as we're going into the 2030s, which says we don't care what happens to mining waste. Because that's, if that's the way it's going to be, you're looking at collapse. There's just no way other way. If we want to avoid, avert that scenario, then that means having a system which says, well, actually, we're not motivated solely by profit. We're motivated by something else. What is that? How do you get to that structure? What does that economy look like if you're if you have a mining company which is working and it's not going to be just profit oriented and let's just maximize profits for shareholders, but it's also going to be about protecting the environment. How does that look? Who owns that company? Is it 
you know, does the public, how does the public and the earth have a real stake in what that company does? Do you see what I'm saying? Those, yeah. those are things that are going to have to happen if we're going to make the technology shifts that we're talking about viable. It doesn't work in the old way of doing things. It's the, it just ends up perpetuating the same cycle. If, if I, think, I may, and then I'll let, and I'll let Simon jump in. I suppose the, the concern that I have with, with that um, is, to use a Chris Hedges terms, you know, we live under like socialist capitalism. Um, like cap you know, this, this mode of capitalism just doesn't work. That's why we get have banks get being bailed out, you know, in two thousand and eight. And so, to su sort of suggest that industries will go, oh, we're going to have to transition to a new paradigm. Actually, otherwise, you know, we might accidentally oh, set the world on fire. They, they won't, won't because they're not going to make those initial investments as well. Exactly. And so, like I, I from what I hear between your words, what you're saying is like we have to get off fossil fuels. And so there is this concern in the community as well around any question mark put over renewables, because right now they are the most viable alternative. They pierced sort of the, the mainstream public. The public want them. There's this hunger. Like this is the moment to act on them and deploy them. Totally. I hear you and I hear any concern that like to kind of distract from that message. But assuming or kind of hoping that that will then transition a new economic model based on these sort of like technological investments even if the fossil fuel industry is dying, like maybe it will be dying, but maybe they'll just keep putting, you know, shots of adrenaline into it in order to keep pumping their profits from it, given, you know, otherwise they're going to have stranded uh, assets for 40 years. You know, it's like this system does not move like an organic system. It is very much kept alive by a set of nurses who are more interested in squeezing the financial life out of it than sort of protecting their own citizens, which is my concern looking at it and looking at sort of the different sides of this debate. Simon, please go on. The oil industry, um, that the dinosaur is dead, that the brain doesn't know it, and the last of the blood is still being pumped up the neck. Right. So um, at a fundamental level, um, I mapped out the plan as it was a few years ago to the express purpose of looking at, you know, can we deliver the minerals for a full system replacement? At the time, they were talking about a full system replacement in 2030. Right, that, 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 that everything will be completely electrified and fossil fuels gone 2030, which at the time was 13 years away. And I came to a database conclusion that there is a mineral shortfall that we are not going to be able to deliver the plan they think they are going to deliver. Now, I'm looking at a whole lot of ideas and technologies that could change the architecture of everything and could actually navigate our way out of this, but none of that is allowed to be discussed. For example, if you try to discuss making batteries out of something else, and, and if we actually get to that point, I've actually got to, a few things to show you, like fluoride's pretty cool. But if we can't, if, if you try to discuss that, you shut down, um, and you certainly wouldn't be funded for any large um, uh, research grants. That was only a couple of years ago. Now we're starting to talk about uh, uh, batteries being made from, from other things. But even so, the people who actually control the money give it only lip service. So my purpose is to remove these guys and allow genuine innovation to actually sort of go forward. You know, we recognize what the problems are, but can we use the human innovative spirit to, to navigate into what we are going to do. 
uh, and that I, I if, if like on a Groundhog Day, I'm still hearing this stuff, which means my work is still relevant. I, I thought my work once made once it made a brutal point, it becomes irrelevant. We go off and do something else. But no, no, no. Here we are, a few years later, still saying the same things. But, but do yeah. but do, but do we agree, Simon? I mean, you know, point blank, yes or no. Do know, but do, do we have enough minerals in the ground for a renewable economy? Not in its current form. That is my belief. And I can show you why I believe that. Even if we go to a six-hour buffer, we're going to have mineral shortfalls. Uh, but the shortfalls are, not, are less about reserves in the ground and more about the mining of the industry's ability to deliver in time to be useful. So if we do go to that scenario in which we can look at shortly, it becomes less about a massive shortfall in reserves and it is more about can we actually do it? But um, okay, and our buffer is, is not doable. We need a larger buffer if we're to go wind and solar. Now, the thing is, can we replace wind and solar or can we get the buffer from somewhere else? Mm. And the at fees? the moment, there, there might be an answer for the somewhere else in iron powder, but, but, but I've got an answer for the rest of this stuff. Okay, Nafis, can we replace, um, do we have enough minerals in the ground? Same question, um, to have a renewable economy. So I think we do. Um, so for instance, I mean, looking at, I didn't really have a chance to go into massive detail looking at uh, the new scenario figures that Simon kindly kind of did. I mean, I think it was great, you know, it illustrates that he's open to exploring all different possibilities. Um, so there are a number of different, so, I mean, as I mentioned before, if we did do the scenario, um, for better or worse, if we did use that scenario of, of you know, over uh, supersizing and getting the battery storage requirements down by around 90%, um, Simon is suggesting that there still might be shortfalls. The thing is that that's not the only thing that you, you need to do. There's lots of other things that you could do and you, we will do. Um, so I think it's wrong to just say pumped hydro storage is not going to work at the end. Pumped hydro storage is, it's, it's provide is already working. Now it doesn't mean, can it be scaled up everywhere and be the only thing? Of course, if you modeled that, probably it would become, you'd find all sorts of problems, but that's not the suggestion. I think the suggestion is, well, we probably can scale it up in lots of different places to some extent to get some seasonal storage going in, in, in many different parts of the world. In Europe, for instance, pumped hydro storage isn't that brilliant. Like there's not that many sites. In other places, it, like in Northern Europe, in, in more as you go Southern Europe, there's more possibilities. Um, there's also the reality of like, there's also other studies which have looked at what happens when you do interconnected grids. Um, two things. One, you kind of combine sectors within a, a society, um, and another, and you also have grid interconnections across borders. So two different sets of studies which show that you can dramatically reduce your traditional electrical battery storage by around fifty percent just doing that. So even if, I mean, and that's, so this is the thing: I don't think farmers' calculations based on these assumptions probably are correct. But what I'm saying is that that's just again, it's another set of calculations which doesn't look at all the different things that are likely to happen as this new system emerges. I mean, for instance, vehicle to grid technology, there's been a whole bunch of studies looking at what happens when you have electrical vehicles plugged in and how they can supply a lot of the stationary storage requirements that you need. In Australia, they found that you could 
if they had all the, if they replaced the whole car fleet with electric vehicles and they were all plugged in on intermittently at different times, that would provide double the storage requirements alone. In practice, I think in reality, in practicality, that wouldn't work. You would still need some stationary storage, but that was a kind of a modeling style which looked at how much you could provide. Now, I think Simon's also right in the sense of saying that, look, at the end of the day, we don't know what these actually look like. It's very difficult to model a lot of these things because we don't know what they'll look like. And that's, unfortunately, that's the way te new technologies work. You know, they, we don't know how they're going to work when you come and they come around. So in a, we're doing all this guesswork. The reality is though, is that these technology changes are happening. And I, I, the other thing I would say is that, you know, policymakers in Brussels, it kind of doesn't matter what they think is going to happen. Yeah. These are disruptions. They're driven yeah. by economics. They're different by, the, the, we don't control these things. If someone in China suddenly invents a sodium battery and then now is, sodium batteries are now going commercial in China, they don't need most of the metals that are problematic in Simon's scenario, they are probably going to scale. You know, we probably see sodium becoming a real player in the battery market. Now, European policymakers sit there saying, we only, you know, blah, 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 we only, only believe in lithium and might invest in that. But sodium is going to scale anyway, whether they like it or not. So I think one of the things that we need to realize is that this stuff that is going to happen to some extent because of the way these things scale and this, but as societies, rather than just sitting there, there's two ways of doing this. One is the way that Simon has seen European policymakers, which is we sit there, stay, just stick to one thing and be like, let's just hold everything about that. Don't just pretend nothing else is happening. The other extreme is to run after every single disruption. And, and so this is, you know, get obsessed with it. I think what we need to do is step back and say, well, wait a minute. Where are these different things going and how as societies do we make choices rather than saying, you know, that's what's going to happen with technology and that's the end of it. And I think the question you asked, Rachel, really gets to the point, you know, just because we might have some tools which could work, you know, maybe if we do, you know, you optimize it in this way and you do this and do that, maybe it might work to some extent. But I think the point is, is that it's not going to happen by itself. None of that is going to happen by itself. And I think that's what we're starting to see. If you let it run by itself, you get what we're in right now. Is that if we just sit here and say, well, technology is just going to solve everything by itself. No, it won't. It absolutely won't. And I think, yeah, when, when me and Simon are getting into these technical debates and I'm getting into technical debates, and I'm talking about URI and all this stuff. I think that can be lost because you're just getting, looking at the technical stuff and having this very narrow debate. Is there enough materials? Is there not enough materials? But I think what's outside of that debate, which I think, which is the issue that you said, I think you can do it. And I think what I'm hearing from Simon is that it's not that we're saying a new system is impossible. I think what we're both saying, we maybe disagree on, a, on, on whether it's a whether the renewable system, that we and I are talking about, that the one I'm saying, is that going to work? Someone might say, I'm not sure that what you're saying is going to work, you know? And fine, I'm open to having that conversation. Maybe what he's saying, some of the things he's talking about, maybe those are the things that we need to look at. Or whatever, that's a debate that we can have. But I think the one, the, the one that, the thing that is the consensus picture that's emerging between us that I think is really useful is that 
this transition doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't happen with saying technology is just going to solve it, which I think is a, which is, which is one narrative, which which certainly some policymakers have taken on, which says, it's all going to be fine. We just let it run its course. No, we have to get involved. We have to have the right policies. We have to change our value system. We have to change our, the way we understand the world, our relationship, all these things. And then that has to translate into how we rethink how we organize these technologies and how those technologies fit within a new system. Those are conversations which aren't happening and we have to have those conversations. And I think that's, in, in a way, this debate that me and Simon have started does distract from that because we're just talking about all this material stuff. But in a way, why are we talking about these other big questions? You know, these changes are going to happen. They're happening now. How do we organize all this stuff so that it works? You know, I, I feel like the conversation in a way has become lost in, oh, you know, everything's going to collapse and no, it won't collapse. But I feel like that's the wrong conversation. You know, I feel like that's become a really pointless conversation. It's not a solutions-oriented conversation. Thank you very much for that, Nafis. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. And I'm glad that you said it, to be honest. I mean, it seems like, almost a shame to have you know two and multiple great minds kind of you know fussing about the details when there's a much bigger picture at play um and like we both you both agree that we're going to have to make some kind of transition and you both agree that that transition is going to look very different to the world that we live in today and for i'm here and what you're both saying is like an awareness of that and trying to like steer that is go it's going to be necessary and it's going to have to inform policy and there's going to have to be far more feedback loops between tech and economy and people and politics rather than this sort of you know explosive expansive never-ending linear you know capitalism it's just not working for well it's working for some people <laughs> but not really working for anybody else and the planet of course we do need to actually have a proper dialogue and I see it as a, um, all my work, I've got like three points in a triangle and my work fits on one point of that triangle. On the other point over here, we've got the social contract, like how do we operate as a society? And on the other point of the contract is how do we operate and, and, and um, interact with the environment? And all three points need to be in place. And then and only then can we actually move to a genuinely sustainable society. Because we've got to actually sort of have lots of things that we've got to sort of sort of go through. And yes, we've got, we've got to be smart about it too. And we, we can't just reject stuff out of hand. We've got to actually sort of sit down and have a proper conversation. What are our true limitations and what are our true capabilities in getting to them? Right? And that dialogue at the moment is very difficult to get going. Very difficult. So yes, of course, I pretty much agree. I don't, I, I haven't heard you say anything I disagree with. <laughs> to me, this is the more interesting part of the, the conversation now. Where should we all be putting our energies? In fact, that's what I would like to open up to, to both of you. Um, say that the sort of, say the technicalities of, of these points are p possibly a distraction from these bigger forces, which we all, it's a whole hands on deck situation to combat, you know, and reimagine the economy. Where should and how should we all be working together in order to like navigate and reimagine and reshape the world 
so that sustainability isn't just about, you know, clean versus dirty energy, but it's about fairness and equity and being more in harmony uh, with our own limits, as you say, Simon, and the limits of the planet. Yes, we, we do need a dialogue. We do need to develop and it will look different. I think it will become more decentralized. I think um, we're going to reinvent the food industry. I think we're going to go to a, a situation where transport will become less prevalent, like, like less relevant, and we're going to move off individual transport and more onto communal transport. The entire industrial sector is going to have to be completely refitted into something else that we haven't seen before. Because at the moment, we're like an amoeba that consumes everything in sight. Can't do that anymore. And so every, uh, every decision we make should be tempered with the phrase, should we do it? And how do we get there? How do we work together to get there? So I think a frank, a frank and honest discussion between people where we try and get out of this paradigm of I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to make you see why you're wrong. And that's how the majority of the discussions around me seem to work. And either we're, we're rolling out the, the same old tropes and paradigms that have been around for 50 years, right? Where, where we just, I, I was at the UN conference a couple of months ago in, in Lille in France, and they said the same stuff. It, it, it was like, they're not our leaders. They, they're not going to come up with any new ideas. Uh, so, yeah. And, and so, or we're sort of um, getting very sort of emotional. There's a lot of emotion in our current discussions that is actually misdirecting things away from the real issues. I, I think um, we need to find a, a way of the people who can actually sort of have these discussions, have more respectful dialogues. And once we have those dialogues, we then action them on pieces of work, which might actually provide a series of maps of what to do. We need boundary conditions, but we also see for the solution might come from that direction, or it might come from this direction. Uh, we need a different way of talking to each other, probably is, is at the heart of all that. Thank you. Nafiz, can you respond as well? And then Simon, I'll let you uh, respond to Nafiz's criticisms. Yeah, I think um, I totally agree with that. I do think there needs to be a different way of, of us. We, we need a different way of communicating with each other about these things. And I think it's the, the old ways of doing of doing this don't, don't work. You know, they've they kind of foster this polarized way of, of thinking about things. Um, I think we, what we really, we need to learn to speak across silos. We need to be able to, we need a lot more kind of systems kind of approaches, but systems approaches that means genuinely kind of moving outside your domain, um, and being open to what's going on in the other domains. Um, but more than that. I think what we really need is a real big society level focus on how we make choices about these big changes that are coming. That is not happening. How do we cultivate not just, you know, this closed expert, slightly banal anal conversations around these kind of technocratic things, which are important. They are really important. But even more important in some ways is this bigger, wider conversation about how do we deal with all of these challenges? How do we, how do we deal with the changes that are coming? So, so the, the, the fact is, as you're looking at all the studies, is that looking at the wave disruptions, what you know, solar and wind is 
going to scale. Like this is going to happen, even if it's if it's a shit technology. Well, it's happening, guys. Yeah, mm. you know, like as you look at the you know the, just the, the cost curves, the way they're going down, and the way the adoption rate is going, and the way these have happened historically in the past, it means that it's coming. You know, it's it's gonna it's gonna be the dominant energy system. So we then have to ask. It's like with AI. You know, mm. twenty years ago, people didn't really think all of this stuff that we're seeing now would have been science fiction. But again, it was it was predictable empirically from the cost curves, right? You could you do the way the costs were going down. And the way the adoption rates go up, you could see that certain things, this is how AI inflection point would come. So AI is going to be, you know, it's one of those things that's going to be, it's going to change everything. But what's not happening is the right conversations around this. It's just, we're kind of sitting here in the driver's seat and saying, <laughs> technology is going to come and do its thing. If technology does come and do its thing, we're going to be stuck with what we're seeing now with the domination of the big platforms. Right. You know, we had a media disruption, which seemingly disrupted centralized control of information through print media and broadcast media. Right. So now we've got to this point where, oh, wow, it's so cheap. Anybody can just do a video. You can put stuff out. You can reach hundreds of thousands, not millions of people really, really cheaply with what makes this podcast possible. You know, 20 years ago, not possible, would never be able to reach that many people. Right. So that's yeah. valuable. But. What we've seen with the technology is that it's opened up a capability space physically, but the, the ethics and the values haven't come with that. We haven't mm. upgraded as people to, to the scale of the, of the technological capability. And so now we've created this crazy wild west situation where there's disinformation wars going, we're constantly saturated with disinformation bullshit hyper-reality, madness, right? Now we've got a new problem. Do you know, kids being, forget kids. I might, you know, me not having to have social media on my phone because of the fact that I get obsessively addicted to having to reply to comments and things like that. I don't, I saw, you know, hygiene, don't have it on my phone. You know, my kids, I'm worried about my kids being on Instagram six hours a day, watching God knows what crap on reels and all the rest of it, right? You know, all the health side effects of that. So there's this amazing capability that's allowed us, we think we communicate with wider people, we educate more people, information is all widely available. But there's this huge incoherence because we're going to have to manage this stuff. And that's the thing, that's the fundamental thing. And what, I think one of the interesting things that, um, the way that this was framed at Rethink X, because Rethink X is often seen, and you know, to some extent rightly so, as you know, very technologically focused. They're a technology forecasting think tank. But one of the things that um, Tony Sieber and, J and James Arbib um, wrote in their book, Rethinking Humanity, is they said very explicitly that all of these technological changes, great, you know, we might be able to solve all our problems, blah, blah, blah. In history, with all of these things that we've seen, is the fundamental precondition for any society or civilization actually break through to a better way of doing things is the organizing system. It's not the production system. It's not the technologies. The technologies yeah. improve your ability to do stuff in the world. Fine. But it's your organize. How do you govern? How do you organize? How do What's your culture? What's your economy? And those conversations are key. How do we manage AI? How do we manage solar wind and batteries? Because we, we could have a scenario which 
are we going to have these new technologies owned and controlled by the likes of Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk? You know, is that going to be some kind of crazy electrified dystopia? Yeah. You know, is that the world, you know, which is vulnerable yeah. to collapse while we're mining the shit out of it? Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a real scenario. So I think that's the thing. It's like we have, we may have tools that could solve some of our, help us solve our problems, but the tools are just tools that any tool is only as good as its maker. So that's the, I, I really think we, that's what I would like to see. I'd like us to have more generative conversations in our societies about how we manage this new world that is coming into being. Could we could manage it, you know, we, with that, and that's where the paradigm we need, we have to have a paradigm shift because if we build all this out within the old system, within the old industrial era system, it isn't going to work. It's, we have a range of very, very negative scenarios which could unfold and that's not a world that I want to live in or want my kids to live in. Yeah. Thank you for that, Nafiz. Simon, I'm just going to say something quickly and then go back to the, the work that you want to respond to. I think that is so important. And as I sort of said before, I'm so glad that this is where the conversation has come. Um, you know that old phrase, like, while the um, left is looking for traitors, the right is looking for recruits? Well, to me, it seems that there's kind of this sort of similar thing going on in, like, the energy space or the eco space. You know, it's like people who care, people who really, really, really care and understand the difficulty of the situation that we're in, understand the danger of the situation that we're in and don't want us to make a wrong move. Don't want the world to make a wrong move. Don't want themselves to make a wrong move. And it seems a shame to me that we see these kinds of like, you know, the fact that there's this green growth versus degrowth, like th these different camps that are kind of like losing their minds at each other all the time on Twitter. And it's like, but we are fundamentally in the same ecological camp even if that camp is like, okay, things have got to change. Like surely, surely we should find it easier to speak to one another. And surely those are the bridges that we should be building with one another so that when we go to really cross that ideological divide to people who don't want to get, like dismantle neoliberal capitalism and don't believe that people need to be, should be treated fairly and equitably and think that fossil fuels are going to be with us forever. Like we need to be one big side to confront that because right now those are still the sort of ideological opinions that are embedded within the systems of power. And so to get to a place of understanding, to get to a place of seeing the transition as a possibility to transition everything, the organizing system, not just the energy system, the economy, how we organize ourselves, how we treat one another, our global relationships, our relationships to the planet. To someone like me, it just looks like opportunity, opportunity that is an uphill battle, yes, and so it's a shame. It's a shame when these, when I see people who, who care, obviously really, really, really care, getting lost in the weeds of these technical conversations, not out of, I think genuinely, not really out of ego or anything like that, but out of a sense of care and duty. And we're sort of doing this, you know, fighting with one another over the details where other people are taking massive risks and gambles with the planet because they don't give a fuck. And those are the people who we need to be targeting with these discussions, I think, together. So we've got three minutes left. How long do I actually have? Um, I've got some time. I've got time. Nafis, do you have time? I've got some time, yeah. How big should the buffer be? Right, this is actually the heart of everything. Right? Like, so when I did my work in 2019, at the time, there was precious little out there of 
how big should the buffer be? And I found a couple of uh, references and I used both of those, but what I actually based it on is when I looked at the solar radiance in Berlin across one year. And what we found was that there was a really, really big difference between winter and summer, right? And, and if, when, if solar power now becomes 38% of the energy mix, it's now so large, it cannot be buffered off against something else. And that's how we operate at the moment. At the moment, when we need more power, we just dial it up and we trade between power grids. And for, usually it's, you know, coal or gas or, or, or whatever. You, you can go up or down as, as needed. So if we were to be self-sufficient and we were to deliver the same amount of power across the year in a smooth sinusoidal way, what would it take to be, you know, uh, to, to, to get through the seasonal variation? What I found with the Net Zero America project, by the way, it's a nice, nicely done piece of work. They recommend that they only need five to seven hours of buffer. And when you go into actually sort of, uh, you know, this is actually over the course out. of a year, over the course of the year, because it was says that is there's never a problem bigger enough that, that five to seven hours can't actually resolve. Right. And uh, where, where they get that from is when they actually look at the difference between supply and demand on a day to day basis. Sometimes demand is more than supply. Sometimes supply is more than demand. When it's more, they should collect it and they keep it, and, and it's never more than a couple of days, and we only need five to seven hours. So that seems to be the source of where that number comes from. The difference between winter and summer, though, in a seasonal context, is enormous. Um, and so I came across a case study that was done in Spain, where they looked in June and November. Now, Spain's pretty good as far as solar radiance goes in most of the northern hemisphere. And they found that they would need 16.2 days of buffer for the month of November alone. Uh, so, okay. And so when you actually sort of put it up on the, on the, the slide that I was actually sort of uh, was going to show, what would one month look like? You know, like, like 28 days. What would 48 hours look like? And what would six hours look like? And so what I was just, just saying here is I'd come across a, a blind spot on the people who are actually sort of modeling and developing uh, power systems, they're not really looking at the seasonal variations. They're looking at a more local uh, uh, variation. I don't believe, for example, six hours is going to be enough to balance out the difference between winter and summer in terms of solar radiance. Right. And so I picked 20, 28 days, which I thought was based on a reference that was published in 2015, and they didn't do any engineering calculations of how big the system would be. So I actually don't know what the true answer is. I, did, I just picked a number that I thought was conservative. Um, I think the real number is possibly even more than that, which suggests we should look at either the electrical technology that is powered by wind and solar, or we should look at wind and solar itself, whether we should um, use it. There has to be something big that changes. So I came to the idea that... Um, uh, um, wind is highly variable and the swings can be up to 48% in size in the data I've looked at and they can go for a couple of days and it's the size of the peak which is actually telling us how big the buffer should be uh, and solar is actually more predictable day, night, summer versus winter but then you've got the layer of weather on top of that So, Simon, can I ask a question here? 
Yeah, you said that this was responding to a criticism. What was the criticism? Okay, the criticism is the my my, my use of the twenty eight day buffer is right. over the top. It's incorrect. I should okay, go back you. to six hours. Thank you. Okay, so so all right. In the interest of time, so we can debate about that. But that that was the reason I actually came up with that. The next thing is hydrogen. Um. Oh yes, the U.S. Department of Energy did a an audit. Internally, and so internally, they were saying that look, look, they said, "Is this correct? Do wind and does wind and solar underperform for several months of the year?" And they did an internal audit, and they found, yes, indeed, uh, for about six months, solar was actually below par and needed to be balanced externally, and wind was also uh, went crazy for a couple of months too. But that was a, a localized weather phenomenon. So they did conceptually find that it was intermittent, and there were data structures across a year that, that, that needed balancing and that that wasn't really part of their thinking. Now, I'm not privy to that study, unfortunately. I was given a table of numbers, which I gave to you in the fees. I don't know what they actually measured, uh, but, but they did basically say that I've been told by the Department of Energy in America that conceptually I was correct. There was a seasonal difference in the performance of solar and wind. So what would that do to Nafisa's option of building out, like maximizing the amount of panels or wind turbines that there are in any given uh, power station? Let's so the, the idea of having three times a build out, mm -hmm. like that's the scenario M, which we will get to. If wind actually goes or solar goes below the level, if you've got three times the capacity that you had before, what's actually lowering stays above the, the baseline. So you, so you have much more capacity mm. to draw upon that. You still have to deliver that, that even that, that you, you just have more capex involved to, to, to deliver that point. And I think so that is a possible solution. Yeah. So, so if the thesis point, if everything becomes so much cheaper, that's fine. Right. Right. So, um, hydrogen. So hydrogen has a round of efficiency of about 28%. It takes about 50 kilowatt hours to produce a kilogram of hydrogen, and you need two and a half kilogram, kilowatt hours to compress it into a 700 bar tank. So that one kilogram of hydrogen, when you put it back through an electrical um, uh, uh, hydro, what am I saying? Uh, a hydrogen fuel cell, you get 15 kilowatts back. So 52.5 goes in, 15 comes out. So if we were to apply that. If we take the 28-day buffer, which I'm quite prepared to be shown that's wrong, uh, I, I still think it's a lot larger than six hours, though. Uh, so we need um, 146.2 million tons of hydrogen to deliver the 28-day buffer. And to do that, we need 7,675 terawatt hours to produce that hydrogen. What does that mean? So This is, this is, this is getting quite technical. Okay, so... so Hydrogen, we're going to use it as a storage. Mm -hmm. Make the hydrogen, store it for a couple of months, and then we're going to take it out and use it later. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so how much power do we need to actually create the hydrogen in the first place? Mm -hmm. And after it's been stored, how much power do we get back? Mm -hmm. Right. And so nothing's for free. You've got to do something. So any solution we actually look at will require some sort of logistical footprint. So... I'm estimating there's, there's about a 20% increase in the needed amount of power on top of my, my existing calculations if we were to go this route. 
and we'd need an extra 124,934 power stations of average size. Now, And there's currently 46,000. In 2018, there were 46,000. Yeah. And if we use the same energy mix, the same energy mix where a certain proportion of that, 70% of that is going to come from wind and solar again, that'll need another buffer again. And that secondary buffer will be 554 terawatt hours. So we're chewing up a lot of power for a 28% efficiency. Uh, in addition to that, we've got the problems of storing large amounts of hydrogen because it's a very small molecule. Mm. Things tend to get brittle uh, you know, um, and uh, it leaks. Yeah. Now, these are engineering problems. If we had to do it, we would face it. You know, uh, these are the challenges. Let's go on to one good solution scenario that you've both discussed and have a dialogue about it. If we were to take the passenger car fleet and automate it, and we all shared everything, we now have 10%, the, the automated, the, the car fleet is now 10% of the size. And because there's less moving parts, they've got a life cycle of now 50 years. Um, so the passenger car fleet cut back by 10%. Commercial van fleet is cut by 30%, but we're still doing the same actions, which means we still need the power, uh, same charge roll. I the think you meant the car fleet was cut. Two ten percent, yeah, two ten percent, yeah. So, yeah. So, it's, so, so instead of like uh, one point four million, uh, instead of six hundred twenty five million passenger cars, we've now got sixty million. So it's it, it, it's massively reduced. Uh, the same distance is traveled. Heavy trucks, buses, and rail and are unchanged because they're they're running at capacity now. The power storage buffer is cut back to six hours. Let's see if that works. And there was a three times build out of wind and solar, uh, and our power needs are the same. Okay. So this was an interesting piece of work. Um, and uh, sorry, our power needs are the same as what well as today, because so, uh, what Nafiz has said is that our power needs would sort of automatically be 50% less because we're not losing all of that efficiency and heat. We've, we've got no, 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 no. So, so we still have to do the same amount of kilometers, right? The same physical actions on the ground. We're going to start right. In, so we're just talking about vehicles in this uh, vehicles, scenario. Vehicles, but also electricity delivered to the grid. Right. So if you use fossil fuels, you lose it's something like two thirds or seventy percent get lost in heat or in some enormous amount. And your your internal combustion engine has an efficiency of twenty five percent, whereas your electric vehicle has an efficiency of seventy three percent. So these efficiencies need to be folded in because they do make quite a difference. Right, and so. Um, yeah. And so society is reordered around those assumptions. I still think we could do more than that, but it was really hard to actually sort of quantify this to the point where you can actually sort of say, um, X number of vehicles traveled this, this distance and we did these things. Um, okay. So what that meant was we now have an extra capacity now it goes to 91,000 terawatt hours. Remembering wind and solar was 70% of the mix before. And we now have 1.6 million new power stations to, to build out. So this is your three times build out. And when we go to the production numbers, so let's go to reserves. Reserves, and you know, when I'm my original work, reserves were way off the charts. This is a bit more digestible. And so we will consume most of these reserves but we have enough copper, we have enough nickel, 
and we have enough graphite, but only just. So one generation of stuff will consume most of our existing reserves. And the, the problem there is, is this is not the only, um, this is not the only demand we're actually going to do to um, go to like nickel and copper use for other things. Uh, the other problem is, let's say everything lasts for 50 years. In 50 years time, you've got to do it all again. And these are, you know, the commodities industry moves much slower in terms of expansion. The real problem for me here is not res reserves anymore. It's the mining industry's ability to deliver, right? Uh, so 2019 was the last year before COVID, so it's the last sensible year of data. So if we're basically saying, what is our mining industry able to do now? And to go through it, we now need 27 years of nickel production, 356 years of lithium. To what? To do what? To, 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 to replace all fossil fuels systems and bring in EV systems according to this scenario, six hour buffer, three times build out. And 10% cut. 90% reduction. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, the, what, what's happened here is the, the, the bottleneck of challenges has moved, to, moved from one sector to another. Now it's actually the ability of the mining industry to expand or deliver in time. So, um, cobalt 74 years, graphite 266 years. And that's with the current size of the mining current industry. Current size system. Now, the reason I say that, 20 years ago, I was in the mining industry. One of the reasons I left the mining industry, tried to, was I was picking up information was the existing business model for the mining industry was grading into a new model. We were going to struggle to actually deliver and, and keep expanding. And we're not running out of resources. We're running out of our ability to access those resources. These are the limitations of the business model behind mining technology. The entire Andes mountain range is one big giant copper deposit, but it's really low grade. The stuff that we can actually access in a viable way or a sensible way is actually much smaller than that. So, I mean, there's a few things there. So for instance, in terms, I mean, when I looked at Simon's original numbers, for instance, I mean, he came up with some similar figures for how long it would take at the 2018 uh, kind of rate of consumption, if you could kind of multiply that, how much you would need to, how many years mining. Now, I think that figure is not a very useful way of looking at it because, um, when you, when you actually look over time. So what I did was look at his figures, you know, reading the assumptions about how much lithium you would need for batteries based on my assumptions. Um, and then it was, as you say, look, how, how has the mining industry grown over the last 50 years? How would it grow over the next 50 years? Um, you know, I think Simon agreed that if you look, if you change those assumptions, if you look at how much lithium mining will actually grow incrementally every year, you know, it's going to continue growing and, and the amount of, uh, it's totally fine actually. So I feel, I feel like that condensing it into, oh, it's going to take this many hundreds of years. Well, we, we're not going to build it out straight away. Um, we're going to, um, build it out over the next say two, three decades and mining has, it's not like mining has stayed static. Mining has been increasing in scale exponentially in compound way, and it would can probably continue to do so. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily going to be, it, you know, I mean, I think it may be an issue we want to think about, but I don't think it's something which means it's not going to happen or it's not, it's not going to be possible. Um, but I think there's question, there's deeper questions there around, do we want that to happen? 
How will it happen? What about the ethics of it? What about the waste? Those are other issues which are highly relevant. Um, so I feel like those things are much more relevant than is yeah. it possible? I think probably is possible. Um, so I think in terms of that, fine. Um, I think, you know, in terms of the debate around um, the, uh, the, the storage buffer, so this is interesting because what's interesting, I mentioned this before, is that if you look at, there's hundreds of studies now about intermittency, and this is just the nature of the field. Most of them will say, this is the seasonal storage we're going to use, and then this is the battery. So whether or not we agree with that approach, that, I think Simon disagrees with it and thinks that a lo lot of the seasonal storage options aren't going to work. Um, but a lot of these guys think it's the seasonal storage options are perfectly viable. That's one technical debate. But so th those models are saying that's why we stuck to a six hour buffer, because that will deal with day to day intermittency and then the seasonal stuff, you've got all these other options. Um, so then Simon obviously addressed some of these, obviously he mentioned some of these things that he mentioned, he's looked at hydrogen as one seasonal storage option. Um, and given some figures for why he thinks, you know, you use that for your 28 days, it's really expensive and might not be viable. So the way I would see this again is that it doesn't make sense to, uh, to me, this is quite a linear way of doing these calculations, but it, which in, in themselves, if you look at them, they're not wrong. But again, why would we want to only do hydrogen? I, I just don't understand that. I, I would say, you, you know, we would need a mix. And I think that's what we're yeah. seeing is that you need, you don't just have solar, you have solar and wind, solar wind and batteries, solar wind batteries, maybe some hydrogen, maybe some pumped hydro. So I think what I'm seeing is as when we're looking at the, you know, is it technically possible? Technically, there's lots of different things we could do. I've already mentioned some of these things. In addition to supersizing and reducing the battery requirements, you could have grid interconnection which would allow you to manage those flows. So if you're not getting, if there's loads of intermittency in one area, not enough, not enough solar wind coming in, but you've got really good grid interconnection across the border, surplus of energy there, you know, so there's loads of studies which have shown that that's perfectly viable and that reduces battery storage a lot. So I think my, the way I'm thinking about this is that, yeah, I think these are what the, the calculations that Simons mm. has done are not wrong based on those assumptions. But what I'm suggesting is that when you look at the way the system is actually going to emerge and the choices we have before us, we can make much better choices about how those systems are going to emerge. And I take Simon's point that that's not what policymakers are, are thinking. So he's trying to say, look, you guys are thinking in this linear way. Well, I'm saying if you do this, that's just not going to work. And I understand that. But maybe what we need to be doing is saying to these guys, that look, you're looking at one thing. This is the whole mix of possibilities out there. What we need to do is explore how these are going to work in different contexts. In some places, you know, you might, you know, there's certain things which might work. You might have compressed air, pumped hydro, um, this much batteries. In some places, grid interconnections are going to be the, easy to do. You know, maybe in Europe, grid interconnection will be really easy because you've already got a European Union, but that won't work between North America and South America because, you know, states and pro pro political issues, God knows. Right. So you might have more. So there's all these different things that I think in reality are going to be things. What I, what I think, what I, what I'm kind of heartened by to some extent is that when I'm looking at these issues, I'm seeing that 
Yeah, if you look at it from a certain way, it looks things are really difficult. Uh, they are going to be difficult. None of this is going to be easy. But I think the you know the ways through we can we can do it. We can we can we can make this work. That's the upshot for me. I don't think materials is necessarily going to be the thing that stops us from getting there. For me, what's really going to stop us from getting there is the, is how we organize those material flows and how we understand these decisions. And if we just, if, here's what's possible. If we don't look at these scenarios and options properly and just willy-nilly let things slide, investors decide that this is what they want to invest in and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. If we don't have a collective intelligence approach, which does explore these things, then we're going to get all sorts of weird shit happening. You know, like, so in most places in the world, they probably won't even consider saying let's supersize our electricity generation, for instance. And then they'll have these massive storage requirements needs, which, which are much closer to what Simon is worried about. And then there'll be a very, that'll be a very difficult situation. In other places, you can have a different scenario. So I think that's the thing, you know, you might have people saying, let's go all in on hydrogen because the hydrogen lobby is sitting there saying, this is the great way to do it. They go all in on hydrogen, they forget all the other options. And then they're stuck, you know, with this really difficult, horrible hydrogen scenario, which doesn't take into account anything else, uh, keeps the fossil system alive going for too long. So I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a certain, there is a certain scientific technocratic literacy, which is kind of near to upskill, uh, policymakers and the general public to be able to kind of understand some of the nuances of these things so they can say, okay. There's a bigger suite of options on the table here. We need to be where we need to really, we do need to understand some of these technocratic things so we can make better decisions about them. Because some things are genuinely crapper than others. Like hydrogen now, genuinely, is just not that great. But again, I'm, I would say down the line, in a clean, clean electricity system, hydrogen looks a lot more viable, a lot more cheaper. You know, zero marginal cost energy from solar and wind makes the cost of hydrogen a lot cheaper. Um, even with the inefficiencies. And yeah, do you use hydrogen for everything and everything? No way. I, I would say keep it to much more limited applications where you think, think you know, maybe it's more useful in certain industries, for instance, where you need kind of fuels that you can use around. Because it's a genuine issue. Of course, there are issues with transporting and storing hydrogen. So is it going to work for everything to store everything? Probably not right now. Um, but so I think, yeah, that, I think that's probably the way I would think about it. But Again, the conversation needs to be focused on how do we, how do we really manage these things rather than it's just not going to work. Oh yeah. I agree with that. We've got to be thinking solution-based instead of complaining and whining. And in fact, this is actually where I'm going to leave a lot of my colleagues behind. Can I have a solution, please? Instead of complaining and whining. Uh, yes, we will need a, some sort of storage split. Uh, trying to get a straight answer uh, out of people what that is has issues. And most of the storage I looked at has an issue. Like for pumped hydro, the issue for me there is how much fresh water it will tie up. So the, the size of the buffer is the problem. If it was a smaller, it would be so much easier. So, and I have a solution for you. So, um, but for, for pumped hydro, if we were to actually hit the target of 28 days, we would tie up the equivalent of about half of the freshwater draw globally 
of what it is now. So 1.9 kilometers. Simon, I'm sorry, I have to stop you. I don't think we have time to go back into technical difficulties. Let's end on a high note. I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> I've become very interested. Oh, I like a challenge. I've become very interested in liquid fuel fission, where we use thorium as the fuel. I've looked at the value chain, and the French, you're going to love this. It is so much smaller than conventional nuclear, almost not nuclear. And if it works out, which is the way I, I, I would hope it is, you've got a very small footprint that can be managed in a fairly sort of localized fashion. It can be put into small modular units, which means we can decentralize the whole power grid. We can maintain a dense power source with heat. That changes the rules for everything. And that will have a ripple on effect. And, and so there are solutions. I'm not allowed to say such things out loud, though, in polite company and around the people I work with at the moment. So now I'm back to complaining. But anyway, so but there is a vector out of this if we choose to. And so, so we've got to collapse our industrial system into a smaller size. And I like the word reimagine. We've got to reimagine into a smaller value chain. And we've got to have a, a real relationship with the environment. We've got to change how our money works. And we've got to change how we talk to each other. And that's the solution set that I'm actually sort of looking at, which allows me to post funny memes on Facebook and with a straight face. Actually, as in, I'm actually able to have a positive attitude about this. Um, a lot of the, my, my colleagues, are, I think you said a best piece, are committed to... 7 billion people dropping dead because they'll starve to death. You know, uh, whereas there is a solution set out of this where we might be, if we actually come together and had a real conversation, we might be able to sort of get out of this. Most of the solutions on the table at the moment, I think, have their logistical problems and we need to change our thinking. That's where I'm at. Great. I mean, it sounds that you're both in the same the same place then. And I was hoping that this conversation would, and I know you've already exchanged over email, but I was hoping that this is where the conversation would end, that it is about thinking and paradigm shifts and changing our values rather than a sort of technological problem. Uh, because if we substitute, then we'll bring the same problems with us. We are going to have to wrap up. Um, I wonder if there is somebody that you would both like to platform. Hmm, I hadn't thought about this bit. Yeah, is there somebody you think should continue this debate? Um, who actually got the show? Do you think you choose a name together or can you choose names of people who fall on other sides of the camp? Yeah, I'll email you. That's yeah, great. Obviously, it must be dozens of people. As Nafis, he's going to Rethink X and Tony um, Sieber. I've become very interested in the Venus project that was originally developed by Jack Fresco. And I'd like to platform him, but he passed away a few years ago. Perhaps somebody else is involved in the project now. I can look it up. Listen, thank you both for your time. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Rachel. Great. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.